Welcome to The Sales Lift. This is your host, Tyler Lindley. Today's episode features the second half of my interview with Casey Hill. Let's dive into part two of our discussion right now. Yeah, no, and, and to touch on the scalability piece that you talked about there at the end, I mean, it's funny because when you hear scale, when you hear, oh, this is not scalable, I think a lot of people are saying that in a in the frame of, well, I can't automate this, and that's what they might mean, versus you can scale these human-centered activities. It just takes more people. It takes more human hours, and I think a lot of business leaders this day and age are scared to do that. They're scared to say, well, this is going to take my team an extra hour a person. That's a scary thought because we know our human humans are expensive in terms of employees and the benefits and all it takes to keep an employee on staff. And that is a lot more expensive than just paying a robot to do it. I liken it to recently, I you go to the, you go to banks and they've, they used to have, you walk into a bank and you've got all the tellers there in the front that are ready to help you. And a lot of banks that I've gone into in the last five years, about half of the teller booths are now these just automated ATMs. And and people were scared. You'd see nobody in line for the automated system and a line of 10, 15, 20 people in line for the humans, because that's what people are familiar with. And that's what they think of when they go inside the bank. If I need to go to the ATM, I'll just go to the one outside. And it's funny, even at some of the banks, they had someone at the front driving people to the ATM. So it was actually taking a human to drive them to the automation um, because, and it, you know, kind of, kind of relates to that video we're talking about. If you need a human to describe something to do, then you might as well just do it with a human and, and have that human touch versus driving people to automation just for automation's sake. I think that we sometimes get so obsessed with being efficient and driving automation and cutting costs and saving money and, and saving time when at the end of the day, it's people doing business with people a lot of times. And when you can separate yourself with your people, that becomes a competitive advantage and, and you can track the ROI of that. And if companies aren't tracking the ROI of that, they should be because they should be finding ways where what can we do that does require a human where we can just add more value and be a lot better than the company beside us. So, Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, I think that, that hits the nail on the head and I deal with institutional investors as well. And that's one of the things that I found is these institutional investors oftentimes come in very much with that scaling mindset, right? Like they're used to, I'm going to take a system, we're going to pump X dollars of specific PPC advertising and SEO, but you know, all these different things, and we're going to churn out this result. And sometimes it takes working with them and showing them specific results and metrics to kind of win them over to the side that, hey, some of these things that might not be on your radar actually can be really impactful. And one of the things that I've started to do more and more with, with in some of these conversations is present use cases like Birchbox is an example that I've written about in the past. They're a company, I want to say maybe 200 million um, in revenue. And they still write personal cards inside their boxes because they know it's that they realize the unboxing experience when someone opens one of these subscription boxes and they get something personal like that, it gets people so excited. They've started that process of doing like those cards. I'm like, look at that's a $200 million company. And there's a lot of businesses actually that you might, Stitch Fix does a number of personal things as well. And so sometimes people don't even realize some of these billion dollar companies, right, are built on that. And another one that comes to mind is, that I think is an awesome use case, I encourage everyone who's not familiar to look at it is Zappos. So anyone who doesn't know what Zappos is, they're basically a company who does shoes, right? But they're now a billion dollar freaking titan in the industry. And it all came on the back of customer experience. And if you read through, there's been tons of, of use cases from all sorts of different MBA programs and whatnot. And if you read through those, 
you see that they just started doing things that were unique and different. So like one example that I thought was cool that I remember top of mind is when someone calls in and they didn't have the right shoe, they would actually sit there on the phone, call competitors and try to make sure they got that person, whatever shoe that person was trying to get. And it was such a mind boggling thing. Like, what the heck do you mean you would sit there and call competitors? But they realized that fundamentally that experience was so exceptional that they were thinking of the customer. What can I do for the customer that would, would basically solve this problem? That that allows them to do that. Yep. And I think the audio cut out there for just a second, Casey, but are you still with us? Yeah, I am still with you. Apologize about that. No, you're good. You're good. Yeah, it's funny you bring up Zappos. I was just having that conversation this weekend. Tony Shea's book is Delivering Happiness, I think it's called. Or And he they talk about it's a customer service model. And that's essentially what Amazon bought when Amazon bought Zappos. They didn't buy a shoe. Co- Obviously, a big, large shoe retailer makes sense, but they really bought a customer service company. And that so many of those things that they did inside the organization didn't scale. They tell the story about the longest customer service call was four, five, six hours or something. They ended up ordering the customer a pizza while they're on the phone. Like all these crazy things they try to get a customer service rep at Zappos to do. And that was a part of the culture too. It's interesting when you bring up Zappos, like obviously we're talking about these client facing things that these companies are doing. It also takes an internal culture though to actually build these kind of models, these things that don't scale, to let people be comfortable to handle situations that keep the keep the customer's interest at heart and re- recommend a competitor. Like that just seems so foreign to a lot of folks and they would be worried about, well, I'm going to get I'm going to get in trouble here. Like this is not going to be good. I'm going to I'm worried about my job here, but if you build that kind of culture, people are comfortable doing those things and then that becomes just infectious and it spreads like wildfire throughout the organization. How do you build a culture of service, of personalization, of going the extra mile, all of these things from a leadership level? If I want to implement some of these ideas and strategies, what am I doing culture-wise? Who am I looking for people-wise to help build this kind of a model? Yeah, so I think that what it really comes down to is ultimately kind of the reward slash penalty of how leadership acts on specific things. So like you can come in and you can tell everyone that you need to hire based on values and all that stuff. And that's all true. But the challenge is that while obviously 100% I support you hiring around values, it can be tricky right? Like figuring out someone's values right on the offset could be tricky. But I think that from a leadership and from a company level, what starts to happen is situations are going to arise where people maybe go off the books, right? Off the specific protocol. And how do you as leadership respond? Virgin Airlines and Richard Branson actually had a really good example of this in one of his books, where he talks about how there was some mix up and one of his employees ended up paying for a VIP's limo ride because there was some mix up with the situation. And that person's boss initially had like penal, hey, you can't do this, this isn't policy. There'd been this whole drama. And Richard Branson has actually, had actually stepped in, which obviously he's the CEO of a large company. He doesn't typically do that. But he had heard about this. He actually stepped in, rewarded that employee, said, this is what we represent. This is exceptional. Totally flipped the switch. Instead of that employee being penalized, which is what had happened initially because they had do, done something off policy, he not only reimbursed them, but he elevated them and rewarded them and said, this is what I want you guys to do as an organization. So I think as leadership, that's the onus is on you of when people do go off book to help customers to go above and beyond, not only tell people and encourage them to do that, but when it happens, then it's like, how do you as an organization respond? How you respond will ultimately either code to your team 
okay, this is good. We should take those kind of actions or make them gun shy. If they're worried about getting penalized, they're going to say, oh no, I'm not going to do that because you know I don't want to violate policy. So I think that's where it sits. And I think it also would help too, if the leaders are actually doing some of these things too, if we talk about, we're talking about these non-scalable personalized things like writing cards and getting on video and being engaging when the their competitors might not be. I think if leaders are hopping in the trenches and doing that and leading by example in some of those regards, I think that employees respond to that because it's one thing to be told to do something. I want you to write these cards. I want you to do these videos, but to see someone who is leading the organization, doing the same things and evangelizing in the same way, I think you can lead by example in a lot of ways there. And I think employees respond to that. Uh, Do you see a lot of leaders doing that? Or do you think that's an area where they could maybe step up their game and, and help this culture piece we're talking about? I think I do see a handful of leaders that are embracing that. And I couldn't agree more how powerful that is. One example that jumps to mind is Pat Flynn. For anyone who doesn't know, Pat Flynn is, I mean, he does a bunch of stuff. He runs a really successful podcast. He runs a lot of really successful online courses. He's a customer of ours at Bonjoro. And he actually wrote a book called Superfans, which is all about how to build customer advocates and these people that are strong, basically pushers of your message. And we were lucky enough to actually get a chapter in his book on Bonjoro specifically. But he's such a great example that he does so many different things. He's a person who's making millions of dollars a year from his businesses. And he's there sending personal welcomes to people around basically sending personal bonjouros to people when they join up to his courses. And I think that's a perfect example that like people look at that and they say, okay, like someone who's that busy, who's that successful, who's at that level is still taking the time to do these quote unquote non-scalable things. Then if you ask one of your employees, they're at that point going to be looking and saying, Hey, if the CEO can do this, (laughs) like I should be able to do this based on the time. So I think leading from the top and setting that example yourself 100% is where you want to start. And in many cases, I think it can even be a good idea to kick things off with that. Show the people on your team that you're willing to take that extra step. It's just the same as a boss not leaving early every day or something like that. Obviously, leading by example is a really important thing organizationally across the board. 100%. We've been talking a lot about video and these non-scalable things in kind of a one-to-one fashion where you've got this one-to-one relationship and you're sending this to one person. Are there circumstances and situations where this might work in a one-to-many fashion where, and when I say many, I don't mean a ton. I mean, but maybe a small group of people where you can still do some of these personalized things, but maybe do it at a little bit more scale so that let's say if you had a hundred customers to reach that day, Maybe you try to bucket them or something into smaller groups and then create personalized messages that's not ultra, that's not one to one personalized, but it's maybe one to five personalized or one to 10 personalized. Is there room for video or some of these personalized things in that arena? Like, from a, I guess, from a marketing perspective, maybe even before they get in that sales conversation, that one to one relationship, what can you do on the front end to maybe start some of those things before you develop that one to one relationship? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. And the answer is absolutely yes. There is a lot of one-to-many instruments. So like in the case with us at Bonjoro, we have a, a Chrome recorder where you basically can get a video asset and just paste it in to any kind of autoresponder, email automation, thing like that you want, right? And, and the difference also, just to be clear for our audience too, is because I think one of the things when people are looking at this initially, they're like, well, why wouldn't I just use a YouTube video, right? Um, which is totally fair. So the reason that you might want to use something like this versus just a Vimeo or a YouTube is because with 
uh, Bonjoro as an example, you have a video and then you have a specific call to action. And just to be clear, this is not just us, right? You can look online and there's lots of video platforms out there mm-hmm. um, like Loom and many others that do the same thing. But the difference of these platforms versus just the YouTube video is they watch the video and then there's a direct thing for them to do right after that, right? And so you're able to drive click through, you're able to drive action much more effectively than a YouTube video, which sure, you can have a video down in the, or a link down in the description, but it's not designed around that. It's not an apparatus that's really built to push an easy action. So if you're looking at, this comes up all the time, that like one to many with say webinars, an example, someone gets 300 registrants for a webinar and they might want to just send an update to those people that isn't just like the standard routine one that has a video component behind it. Great application for a one to many type of situation or updates or all, all sorts of different applications. So hundred percent, you can do one to many. And that's something that I think there is a handful of use cases around. Yep. I love that example. And it's such a good point to bring up. Why wouldn't I do that just on YouTube or on Vimeo? Just put it out to the public. I mean, I think that's a great arena for building brand and for putting out content like maybe podcasts or things that you want to work, product updates, those kind of things. But if there is a specific call to action that you want someone to take, if off the webinar, our goal is to get someone to try it to sign up for a trial or to do a demo, whatever that specific action might be, maybe we put that carrot out and, and attach it to the video versus just hope that they end up on that page on our site, uh, just based off looking at a video online, which is probably unlikely that they're going to, in the sea of content and information that they have to sift through, they're not going to think right after they see your YouTube video, man, I'd love to sign up for a free trial right now. Wonder where I could do that on their website. That's rare that someone would take that path internally. So almost like making it easier for them would increase the likelihood of that conversion at that point. Right, Casey? Yeah, a hundred percent. I think that it's ease of use for the customer. And it's also almost to the inbox experience. Like I, I've kind of, I've written an article about this where I showed two inboxes side by side and I kind of show them with a YouTube link versus I show them like with a Bonjoro GIF. So on one hand, you have an actual thumbnail where, cause we'll pull like a preview of the first like two seconds. So you have a person who's sitting there, who's waving to you. There's like motion that's watch a video. The other case, you have a raw link and you think about what is someone more likely to engage with? Like just a raw link or something that actually has some sort of interaction. I think that's also a component too of as much as possible. Like I would tell this to people, even if you're going to use a YouTube, make sure that you bring in like a thumbnail Mm -hmm. and have it be hyperlinked behind there. Don't just drop in that open link, which a lot of people unfortunately do, because I think that just is not something that is particularly appealing um, (laughs) from an inbox perspective. Yeah. I think people are also scared of the open link this day and age too, because there's so many open links that we just get sent. And I think people are worried about maybe security. They're worried, what am I clicking on here? Versus if you have that that uh, GIF. Is it GIF or GIF? I always get those confused. So is it? <laughs> I, I don't, I'm the wrong person to ask this. I say GIF, but I know someone, I, 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 I can like, hear someone on my team yelling at me afterwards and telling me I'm saying it wrong. I know, right? That's <laughs> GIF or GIF. Maybe that'll be the title of this episode. But, um, but yeah, I totally agree. When you put in whatever that word is, when you put that into an email, it, that does give it, lend it some credibility. And I think one thing that I've seen too in using personalized video Someone doesn't even have to click through and look at the video. Just the fact that they saw that little clip of you saying, hey, or maybe you're holding up a sign that says, hey, Casey, or hey, Tyler, that is itself personalized. And someone knows that, wow, this email is personalized to me, at least to that extent. The rest of this might not be, but at least they took that that step, which I think is a great first step for a lot of people. If someone's out there, so if someone's running it, we talk to a lot of revenue leaders who are looking to scale their organization. If someone has yep. never done video before, they, they don't do any video right now. They maybe don't have much on YouTube or anything. Their individual folks aren't using video. 
How do you get started with video? What's a good starting point? Because it can be overwhelming just saying, we've talked about a thousand different applications just in the last half hour. What would be some good early first steps you should do in terms of if I'm just getting started with video and I know that I can use this as powerful personalization, what are some things that I can do on the front end to really see ROI quickly from video? Yeah, hundred percent. So I, I think there's a couple basic things. The first thing is I think it's very important to have something that working with your systems, what essentially that's going to mean is you have, I mean, almost all of your revenue leaders out there, I'm sure use either a CRM or some sort of ESP tool, or they have ways that they're managing their data. And so as a starting point, the way that a lot of video tools have kind of expanded out on the market before us, and when I say us, I, I mean Bonjoro, is that they've been kind of built as like these one-off, like you can hop into your inbox and you can record back a video. Mm-hmm. What we wanted to do specifically was to say, hey, what I think makes the least resistance is to have it directly tied in with your system. So for instance, if you create a new opportunity, just have something that pops up on your phone and says, record a video for that person. Or when someone opts in, pops up and says, record a video for that person. So the first thing I would say is if you want to create some sort of sustainable model, especially something that you can scale and get teams to adopt, find a way to connect it in with the tools that you use. So it's very seamless. And that process is very easy. That's, that's one component. The second thing is, I think you need to start simple. That's one of the things I found is because I talk with so many people around video, I'll, I'll sit down and the people will get actually really excited. They'll say, oh my God, like we could use it here. We could use it here. They could use it here. And they have like, seven use cases. And then I think sometimes that can become kind of daunting because they try to implement too much, too fast. To me, I would say, start with something basic. If you want to use it around opportunities, great. If you want to use it around new customers, welcoming them on board, great. So I'd say, start simple, work it into your system. And then the third component I think is really important is you need to track, right? Tracking is so critical. One of the things I do all the time is when someone's trying out video, I say, only use it for half your people. They say, well, why? If it works, why wouldn't I use it for all? Because I said, if you for the first month or first two months only use it for half, you're going to get really clear data, right? Just like with the example of sending these two demos that book, if we send a video to half of the people, then at the end, we could say, we spent six hours on video. We got this many more calls that showed up in this cohort. And that was worth X dollars to us. If at the end of that experience, you can have a clear number where it says, we made $18,000 more in revenue because we did this. That's what's going to sustain you versus just kind of that feel good of, oh, people respond positively. It's like, that's nice that mm-hmm. people respond positively to it. But what's going to really keep revenue leaders in the game is to be able to see the dollars and cents. So I think that's also a really critical thing is have a specific metric in mind whether that's conversion, retention, whatever you're using it for, and measure how it does against your baselines. Because I think once you do that, and once you see that impact, now it goes from, okay, we can now continue to expand this out because we have a sense of the type of impact it can produce. Yep. Love it. Love those three examples. So Casey, thanks so much for coming on today, talking about video. If folks want to find you online and connect with you, what's the best way to connect with you online, Casey? Yeah. So our website is Bonjoro, B-O-N-J-O-R-O. I know it's a little bit confusing. People always get a, <laughs> people always get confused on the spelling, but yeah, it's B-O-N-J-O-R-O. And I'll give that link over to Tyler. I'm sure you can have that in the show notes.com. So bonjoro.com. Or if anyone wants to reach me directly, feel free to email me. My email is Casey, C-A-S-E-Y at bonjoro.com. So you're welcome. Reach out with any questions. Happy to chat with anyone who's kind of curious about anything we talked about today. Thank you so much for listening to today's show. 
You can find all the links discussed and the show notes at thesaleslift.com. That's the, T-H-E, sales, S-A-L-E-S, lift, L-I-F-T, dot com. Have questions for me? Email me at tyler at thesaleslift.com. We look forward to seeing you back here next week. And we hope today's show brings you the sales lift your business needs. Remember, ideas plus action equals results. You've got new ideas. Now it's time to take action and the results will follow. See you next time.